preparation is key. I will always have a proposal and always a recommendation. And in a dialogue, there might be a better recommendation. I think early on, the competitive juices in me would say, no, my way is right. But I think it's less of a vulnerability and more of a good character trait to be able to say, I think your way might be right. Being able to do that, especially with somebody that's on your team, can be meaningful for that other person. It encourages people to come to you with ideas, with alternatives, and challenge you. That's another trait of a good leader is to say to your team, challenge me. It embodies a great leader because we're not right all the time. The ability to admit to that is really important. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Our guest today is a lawyer who went from solo practitioner to running a successful law practice to becoming senior director of benefit policy intelligence at Comcast, where he's responsible for overseeing health and employee benefit legislation and regulatory activity. He has also taught several lectures on the topic of disability benefits to attorneys across the U.S., many of which are here with us at Lawline, and is also an adjunct professor at Temple and Drexel University. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, Scott Daniels. Scott, welcome. Hey, Sigal. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm super excited to have you on the show. For some context for our listeners, Scott and I have known each other for over 10 years now, which is crazy. And Scott and I actually worked very closely together when I used to put on evening CLE events for Lawline way back in the day. So far back. <laughs> I was actually thinking about it because I was like, you were in the good old 55 exchange in the financial district in New York City. And that was like even before we started filling up the larger auditoriums in New York Law School. Exactly. And I cherish those days. Those were fun days. And I missed my time with Lawline, but I know you guys are flourishing, which is great to say. Thank you. Yeah, those were really fun days indeed. So first of all, I'm so excited that you're here because you have always been an attorney that I admired. You were maybe five years ahead of me in legal practice, but it seemed like you were just so many years more in experience. It seemed very early on in your career, you were ready to teach others. Where do you think that comes from? I think that from my time in law school, I was always drawn to understanding more about law beyond the classroom and beyond the law firm, even beyond the traditional legal settings. And I use the, the lectures and law line as actually twofold, as an outlet, my passion for teaching and, and being able to discuss an area of law that I truly enjoyed practicing, which is for the most part disability law. But there was an entrepreneurial side to it. And the entrepreneurial side of it was the area that I was practicing in was a very niche area, disability and workers' compensation, and it was very complicated. And one area that, to be honest, not a ton of attorneys go into. So by doing a lot of these educational sessions, attorneys that maybe had no experience in that would refer cases over. So I, I was drawn to the entrepreneurial aspects of doing it. also just enjoyed doing the teaching. Yeah. And I think now people are more privy or savvy around the idea of education as a business development tool. Whereas I think you were really onto something pretty early on doing that so early in your career. Yeah. And as we did some of our lectures, it was not your traditional lecture with slides and bullets. We, we tried to incorporate mock trial settings and what a client interaction looks like, a real life scenario 
that even in my time now as an adjunct professor, I take that into the classroom to try to explain to the up and coming law students, what you learn in a textbook is a tiny piece of what you will actually do in practice. I just have one of those memories that you unlocked that you forgot that you had <laughs> about all of those mock trials that you used to do. I remember setting up the tables and us talking about what's the best way to position this so everyone really feels like they're experiencing what it feels like to be in these situations. I remember you caring very deeply about the student experience um, and making sure that they got an authentic experience when they did it. Some of the best feedback we got from the lectures with my former managing partner, Brian Bittman, who's a, still a close friend of mine, was those trials because it gave them insight into what actually happens in a real administrative law setting or workers' compensation board. And it actually gave them the practical experience for an attorney who may not be so well-versed in that area to have the confidence to go in and litigate on behalf of clients. So it's some of the best feedback we've got. Yeah, and you actually inspired me. I was still a very new attorney, so I didn't have as much experience as you guys. But I remember doing a whole session on what do you say when you first walk in to landlord-tenant court in the Bronx? Like, <laughs> what is the actual thing that you say? Because you just walk in, no one tells you what to say. It's like, where do you walk? Where do you stand? Where do you put your notice of appearance? Those very specific little things that can throw off someone's confidence when you walk into a room. And I also remember people being like, thank you, actually. That was yeah. very helpful. Those kind of small, nuanced specifics can give an attorney a world of confidence when they're ready to actually take on that case themselves. Yeah, there's no question. And, and like I said, there was an entrepreneurial side of it, which was how do we get useful information out to not only the legal community, but to prospective clients. And I think that clients and lawyers alike both appreciated the simplicity of getting educated in an area, because I think every lawyer would agree to this. The best client is an educated client and, and an educated client who understands the potential impacts of what happens in their case. Those little short tidbit videos brought us new clients, but also brought us new referral sources. And that was the entrepreneurial side of things. And, and they were fun to do. Absolutely. 100%. So take me through your journey a little bit. Coming out of law school, I had a few experiences with some general litigation firms, very small firms, feeling my way around in the personal injury space and, and really a couple different areas of civil litigation. I enjoyed it, but living in New York City at the time and Obviously, it's not cheap to live in New York City and started to go my own way with doing independent contracting for a variety of different firms, doing a variety of different work. And it wasn't until I found an opportunity in the disability space where I truly found my love for this particular area of practice and spent some time with a, a fairly national firm where I really got my first experience with disability claims and, and litigating those at the administrative level, representing hundreds of different clients really all over the country. Then when I got, I'll say, localized my, my practice, I, I joined a practice, Mark Offenbittman, where I relegated my practice to New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. I really had an opportunity to hone my skills as a litigator in both the disability space as well as advising on, on workers' compensation. And so I was able to hone my, my skills as not only a litigator, but also a bit of an entrepreneur and a salesman, building a larger client base for the firm and, and really building up the disability department. I genuinely enjoyed this area of practice for a couple of reasons. The work was so gratifying, being able to help people that are in very difficult situations. I also love the ability to argue a particular theory in front of judges, argue a case in front of a, a governmental agency. I was able to develop a really good rapport with these governmental agencies, as well as the judges as a professional. It became a passion of mine. I ended up falling in love with the space and also being able to handle state disability cases and federal disability claims and municipal claims. So it really exposed me into a number of different areas in my arena. 
And then also, of course, having the attachment to New York workers' compensation, which is a highly complicated area, but being able to advise in that space as well. So it, it fell into it almost by accident, but thoroughly enjoyed it. This is a really great summary, and it's really interesting to hear what motivated you and then how you went from this broad kind of practice and how you slowly started to localize it and then become even more and more specialized within it. So you're specializing in this. You're really doing well. You're clearly bringing in clientele, bringing in referrals. Why the move to Comcast? After about seven years of practicing in the disability space and absolutely loving what I was doing, I looked further out and said, look, I, I found a niche. I think I'm, I'm really good at this niche and I could see myself doing this for the next 20 to 30 years. But the one thing that was missing for me was this concept of always learning. I think I got to the point where I didn't think that I was learning as much as I wanted to learn. I was so fortunate enough to find at Comcast was overseeing the disability work but no longer in that attorney space. This was in the HR space. This was on the benefit team. And this was really looking at disability claims in the aggregate. We have on the Comcast cable side at the time over 80,000 employees. And a lot of it is vendor management. And then there's a huge piece of it, which is advocacy for the employee. So you're operating on both sides. A huge advocate for the employee, which I've always been in my time in practice and certainly continue to do that now. And then really looking out for the best interests of the company. I always tell a funny story that when I first came into to the corporate space, I was speaking with somebody and they asked me if I could send them a deck. And I, I had no idea what a deck was. I literally <laughs> did not know what a deck was. I now know as a PowerPoint presentation, but I just really jumped in. And I can honestly say over the last seven years, I have not stopped learning. So that gamble to me paid off because I have this opportunity to work on projects that I am so unfamiliar with, work on things that are very hard. And it's just very different than my time in private practice. Even though I still have moments where I jump back into putting my lawyer hat on, I'm not on the legal team, I'm the benefits. And you know, I think for me, it's just been such a learning opportunity. And one thing I'll say too is, I don't think in law school, you really fully grasp the amount of opportunities that exist out there for legal professionals outside of the traditional law firm setting or government setting. So there's just a lot out there. As someone that is also not working in the traditional law setting anymore, there is so much that can be done. And especially now with the emergence also of legal tech, there's so much that a legal mind can bring, whether they're practicing or not practicing. How do you think the shift from a culture perspective, going from practicing law to going to a corporate environment and specifically within HR, what did that shift in culture look like for you? The culture is just fantastic. It is empowering. It is ambitious. And it's exactly what I wanted in a career path. So really interesting. I think when you're in private practice, you have this mentality that if there's an issue, you can resolve it with a phone call. You can resolve it with a phone call to a judge, with a phone call to a client. In the corporate setting, it doesn't exactly work like that. And a lot of what you do is predicated on a high level of collaboration. So you're depending on a number of different people, and that could be within your team. It could be within another team. You have to rely on business partners. So the collaborative space in the corporate world operates at a very high level and getting buy-in is critical. The other thing I've learned and I hopefully have honed over the last seven years has been the ability to listen and not want to respond right away with the answer. When I was in practice, I felt that I always had the answer. When I came into the corporate space, I tried to reflect those same ways of always having the answer when the more responsible way to handle it is actively listen, think, analyze, assess. You may not have that answer right away, but you can build credibility by coming back 
with a fully developed answer and you might need some help along the way. So that, that's another thing I've been practicing over the years. Was that something that you learned over time? Was there an instance in which like that became an aha moment for you? Overseeing leave of absence for about five years and I've shifted into a, a different role now, but overseeing the leave of absence is a very complex space, one that has grown tremendously over the years and it can be emotionally driven. Some of these situations were very difficult and involved a high level of compliance and regulatory activity. When situations would arise, I tended to always want to answer and always want to say, I know what the problem is. I know what the issue is. When I think the, the better approach, which I've come to have a great deal of appreciation for is think way more methodically, take a step back, understand the business partner's issues, and really take your time in developing a response that you may not be able to deliver right away. And I think there's a, a level of appreciation for that on the other side. And it's helped me be just more patient as an individual. It, it took some time I'm, and I'm still working on it now, but it goes back to this idea of just always learning. I'm just continuously learning from these situations and trying to be as collaborative as, as I can and not adversarial as a traditional attorney might be. I also try to practice this as well, and I'm still a work in progress. But one of the things that I found is the more I listen, I'm very surprised by how many assumptions I, I made before actually fully listening. Yep. So yes, there are times where you can answer right away and, and you probably have the right answer, especially if you've been doing it for a really long time. But even then, if I sit back and listen, I connect these dots in ways I wouldn't have otherwise made if I was just jumping in to the conversation. And I found that to be so satisfying because yeah. it validates how important that listening is. And it also provides you like that level of learning that you wouldn't otherwise have. Yes, you could answer a question right away and then maybe two to three days later, realize what the situation was, connect those dots later. But to be able to sit back, you almost get the answer more right away if you sit back and listen. So anyway, I just think that's really cool. You just brought something to my head too, which I think is so critical. And it's something I wish I did more in my time of practice is ask questions. There is no bad question. I am the type that will ask any question. If I don't understand something, I, I rarely get embarrassed when asking a question. Cause I think if you don't have all the information, you run the risk of answering in a way that may not be what the other side is looking for. So gathering as much information as you can and asking questions and involving other people in the room, right? I think there's some people that tend to be louder at meetings and, and I think including everybody to gather as much information as you can has been so critical in my development and really just fun to watch over time because I used to fire back with answers and now I'm very reserved. <laughs> I feel like it's not even about answers anymore. It's just how do I ask better questions to gain that information? Yep. You also mentioned you have been able to create a lot of really great relationships. Talk to me about that. And I've made it a point where if anybody that I meet in the corporate space, inside of Comcast or outside, treat it like an interview. I, I think that impressions are incredibly important. Be punctual, follow up with individuals and really get a sense of who's doing what, who can help you, who can I help? How can I provide value? I'm constantly thinking about providing value. But I think the, the relationship side has been really fun for me. I've always been a relationship-driven individual. And, and look, at the end of the day, not all of these situations are rainbows and butterflies. And working through them with people and then developing that relationship tends to make the next really hard situation a little bit easier to swallow and you, you just you continue to build that over time. Tell me a little bit about, if you can, what kind of issues just high level are you dealing with? Again, my, my time in the overseeing the leave of absence phase, you had some pretty emotionally driven disability or leave claims that 
could be worked through, but you need multiple people to work through them. One of the re main reasons I joined Comcast was to have that ability to be able to advocate for the employee, which I love. It could also be an external vendor. And there could be a number of parties involved. And the ability to come together and work through a very difficult situation, yeah, it's pretty gratifying. And, and there's a lot of parallels to when I was in practice, because I've seen a lot of very difficult cases where working through it with a judge, a agency attorney, as well as your client, it's a gratifying experience as, as, as long as you are advocating for your client or the employee, as well as in, in my situation, the, the best interest of the company. You talk a lot about your team and being collaborative, both within your team and outside and different teams. What do you think makes a very good team? Yeah, love that question. The thing that I jumped to first is really inclusion. I'm big on making sure that everyone on the team have a voice and can do it with conviction. Being able to leverage your team for the right path or the best path. I don't want to say it's necessarily the right answer, but the best path is a pretty cool thing. I love getting different perspectives because one thing as a lawyer that we should always be doing, even if we think 99%, this is going to be the answer. We should be looking at the other 1% and thinking, why is it that way? And I and love just looking at it on both sides. So when you really think about a team, it's being able to include everybody, getting all of the different perspectives, because that will ultimately create a better product when it's all said and done. And even if we're talking about a service, because you'll have the analysis of different schools of thought, which I think is critical. Agreed. I also love this idea of it not being the right path, but the best path. It actually reminds me when we took the bar exam and they were like, not what's the right answer, but what's the best answer? One of the things that I love about doing adjunct law professor stuff with, with Temple and Drexel, one of the things I, I really love about it is disability claims that have gone to the federal courts or up to the circuit courts. There is no right or wrong answer. I push my students to take a position, advocate for your position, and then back it up. But know this, you're not right and you're not wrong. And how that court ruled on a particular case, another court may have ruled differently. And so if the lawyering was different, could there have been a different outcome? Maybe. And I think my favorite part is getting the students to take a stand and then having other students challenge that stand and just really letting it flow and watching them form their arguments. It's a really fun area because the law is constantly changing. The decisions that come down from the court, again, who knows if they're right or wrong, could have been the best path in that outcome. That's great. They're so lucky to have you as a professor, <laughs> truly. What does leadership in the law mean to you? I love the question. And I'll say calculated creative judgment, the ability to be composed under pressure or not under pressure for that matter, and think about both sides of a particular argument or situation. And then really leveraging any creativity that you might have. There might be some creative ways to go about solving the problem. And I think it, the vulnerability side of it is, are you willing to listen to the other side and maybe be wrong? You might be wrong. So talk to me about how you deal with situations when you realize you're wrong. Yeah. So I, I got to tell you, I'm the type of person that will come utterly prepared for almost everything I do. Preparation to me is key, whether I'm getting my kids to the bus stop or I'm preparing to deliver a presentation. I'm anticipating questions. I'm anticipating the way that the meetings could run. And there's times where I will always have a proposal and always have a recommendation. And in a dialogue, there might be a better recommendation. And I think early on, the competitive juices in me would say, no, my, my way is right. But I think that it's less of a vulnerability and more of a, a really good character trait to be able to say, I think you might have the better path. I think your way might be right. And being able to do that, especially with somebody that's on your team or a peer, 
that can be meaningful for that other person. It embodies a great leader because we're not right all the time. And I think the ability to admit to that is is really important. And it creates a lot of credibility, too, because you're the leader that's going to be very open to whatever ideas are coming and looking for, honestly, the best path, not just being the right person. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think it encourages people to come to you with ideas, with alternatives and challenge you. I think that's another trait of a good leader is, is to say to your team, challenge me in a professional way. But I think that's right. It's exactly right. I love that. So if there was one thing that you could improve about the legal industry, what would it be? Now, the one thing that comes to mind for me and probably why I got into doing um, some adjunct law work with, uh, with Temple and Drexel is I think that what we learn in law school tends to be typically covered in textbooks. It, it tends to be covered in real life. If you're fortunate enough to do a clinic, you see how things play out, at least a, for a, a period of time. But really love what maybe some newer law schools are doing around being more entrepreneurial and understanding that your law degree can get you so many different places. It can get you into the consulting world. It can get you into the risk world. It can get you into the business world where I transitioned into. It certainly can you know, get you into the legal world and the law firms and governments and things like that. But I would love to see more practical knowledge dispersed to law students about doing more with their law degree and that you're not cornered when you come out of law school after you take the bar exam, that you can really be exposed to a number of different areas, including the business world, which is uh, a space that desperately needs more legal minds. Yeah, I think about this a lot, actually, because I did do a clinic when I was in law school. I did a family law clinic where I interned for a judge in the family courts in the Bronx. And it was an incredible experience. And I learned so much. But I also learned I never wanted to do it. <laughs> Because it was a lot of child neglect and stuff like that. And it just wasn't for me. Like I couldn't do it. And I admire so many lawyers that are able to do that kind of work. It's so important. And I think about that because thank God I learned that early on, not at the expense of going and, and investing my time at a firm, things of that nature. And I think about the medical industry and how medical schools, they do these rotations, right, where these students really experience various types, whether it's psychiatric, whether it's OBGYN, and then they really get to have hands-on experience, get to talk to these people in their real lives, and then make a decision on where they want to do their residency. And so I feel like you're so right if law schools can really think about a structure that really in some ways mirrors the medical industry and giving people the opportunity, maybe in their 3L year that everyone jokes is, what are we doing here anyway? And really providing people the opportunity to have real world experience throughout that year, I think would be so helpful in people's decision making. Yeah, I think they refer to it as experiential learning. I think it's the best way to learn, especially for lawyers. And the clinics, in my opinion, should be a requirement. The value to be gained from actually being in a practice is way more than what you'll get in a textbook. 100%. Thank you for that. So what is something that people seem to misunderstand about the work that you do? It's funny. Having been in the, the absence space for, for several years, I moved into a, a new space within our benefits team where I'm overseeing the legislation and, and policy around employee benefits. So I want to be clear, it's not all policy or, or legislation, but employee benefit impacting legislation at the state and federal level. So healthcare, retirement, anything that really impacts any of our benefit programs. And I think when I speak to colleagues in the legal industry and, and explain to them I work for Comcast and what I do, I think the first inclination is, oh, you're in the legal department, but that's not the case. In fact, our human resources team has a bunch of lawyers operating. And I think what that goes to show is that, again, the wealth of opportunity that exists for people that have the practical legal 
background, whether it's contract negotiation, whether it's a risk assessment, you can literally draw up a list of things that lawyers can do that can be very beneficial to a corporation. And I think that it's that sort of, I don't want to call it a stigma, but it's more of a mentality that if you work for a company and you're a former lawyer, you're probably in their legal department. That's just not the case. So to that point, when you say employee benefit legislation, policy, regulatory activity, just give me a a better sense of what that actually means in your day to day. Yeah, sure. Over the last couple of years, there's been a, a bunch of big pieces of legislation, whether it was the Consolidated Appropriations Act. A lot of this was as a result of COVID-19. The American Rescue Plan was another big one. Within those large pieces of legislation, there are oftentimes benefit impacting legislation like flexible spending accounts, very popular benefit for a lot of companies. And while we were going through COVID as a result of the American Rescue Plan, there was, no pun intended here, there was flexibility created around the flexible spending account. And a quick example is If you don't use that money up before the end of the year, it usually disappears. But what this piece of legislation actually allowed employers to do was roll that money over. So for people that usually were going to spend a good amount of money on, say, childcare expenses, a lot of those facilities were closed. A lot of schools closed. You weren't able to spend that money. Employers, us included, were able to say, hey, we're going to roll that money over. Now you've got even more money for the next year. And so that allows some more flexibility for people to be able to use that benefit. Now, in order to make that happen, my role on the front end, looking at it from a benefit policy, get together with my functional leads, make sure that we have the operational prowess to make that happen. And then we have to communicate to employees about their ability to utilize that. So that's just one small example, but there's a lot of different pieces of legislation floating around that will impact benefits. We just have to watch it play out before it becomes law. And when it does, we in the benefit space have to operationalize that through a number of different levels. You're always so good at explaining things. This is why you're a great teacher. Seriously. So how do you keep track of all of these changes, especially some that are potentially like buried in in something else? How do you keep track of that? Yeah. So good tie back to the partnerships that I'm able to have within Comcast. We've got some great partners in our, our government affairs team. We have people very well versed in a lot of this legislation that's coming through. We also rely heavily on external partners to see what sorts of pieces of legislation might be coming through. A huge topic over the last year has been the potential for federal paid family leave. And depending on the week, you didn't know where it was going to land, if it was going to happen, if it wasn't going to happen. Now, it hasn't happened yet. And really, I think the fun part of the job is trying to decipher what could be legitimately passed and what we need to hold off on to see if it will actually pass. And so that's been really fun in the policy space. A lot of it is like getting as much intel as you possibly can and then reacting in the most prudent, methodical ways in partnership with our internal teams like government affairs and and public policy. I relate very deeply to this from the employee level of things. I had two kids and trying to apply for disability benefits and you don't know what to do. And there's so much paperwork. There's a state disability benefits. There's the company policy that you need to go through. There's so much that you need to think about. And I was a lawyer. I was able to really sift through this information. But for people that perhaps didn't have the education or the background to be able to sift through this stuff, how important it was to have an advocate. After I got back, and I was the chief operating officer of Lawland, I made it a thing where I was like, we need to be so clear on communicating what benefits are available to people and a step-by-step on how to go through these things. 
And I know that you say that you communicate or at least part of the process of communicating these changes and how they affect employees. What have you found has been really great ways to communicate this? You know what? I think there's just a multitude of ways. The disability arena is one of the most complicated spaces. And think about it from the, the claimant shoes or the patient shoes, heading into what is considered to be a daunting process. And you just talked a little bit about it, where you have to submit medical and you have to fill out forms and there's legalese. And the person is likely dealing with a physical or, or emotional condition that's the hindrance as well. On one hand, this is one of the most complicated things you will ever see. On the other hand, and what kind of drew me to working for a company like Comcast has been this ability to enhance a traditionally difficult process. And it, it still is a difficult process because we're seeing more and more leave laws coming out. But to the modes of communication, I, I, I really think it will depend on your employee population. I think it will depend on the technology advancements that are there. So it's a little bit of a mix of great HR teams, which we have, but also digital modes of communication, great external partners that do a lot of educating and explaining and level setting. When you really boil this down, a lot of it comes down to empathy and advocacy. And you want to explain and educate about these processes, but you want to be empathetic to the situation. And so we've done a ton of work and the team has done a ton of work over the years to try to bolster those three things, advocacy, education, and empathy. The more educated your HR teams are, the more educated your managers are, the more empathetic they'll be. And I think the greater the advocacy will be inside the organization. I like the idea of the HR team working with the managers to ensure that they're also a partner in helping the employees understand how the benefits are affecting them and, and the benefits that they can leverage. I think that's such an important process that I don't think I, or at least I don't hear a lot about. So I really appreciate that. So what piece of practical advice would you give to our leaders, future leaders in the law that are looking to follow your lead? I would encourage Anyone that's in practice now, if they're thinking about making a jump or thinking about making a switch, network as much as possible. Network with individuals that might be in these particular roles. Maybe you might have an opportunity to shadow an individual on their day. The virtual world has almost leveled the playing field for people that may want a job shadow and see what somebody does on a daily basis. If you're interested in that, jump right in. A lot of lawyers, I think, tend to question, did they go the right path at a certain time? There are just a ton of opportunities out there for people with solid legal backgrounds. And you never know, you might jump into a world that you truly might love. I have friends that have jumped into real estate or jumped into the insurance space and they too have no regrets. So I think having the conviction and having the confidence to try to learn as much as you can before you may take that jump or in some respects, take the jump and see what happens. I can tell you from my personal experience, I was pretty scared jumping over into the corporate world, having been in practice for 10 years and it's been the best decision I've made. And so my experience has been a good one, but I, I think that the best piece of advice would be learn as much as you can about a potential opportunity and then maybe take that risk. You talk about fear. How did you overcome that fear? I was able to, and I have to say, this is kudos to, to the, the onboarding process and the Comcast talent acquisition team, the shameless plug, but the talent acquisition team and the people that I had an opportunity to interview with over the course of maybe a month and a half, I was able to learn so much about the company, the culture, the people. And that's what drew me there was my ability while they were learning about me, I was able to learn so much about them. And I have such a great deal of appreciation for it. Still very close with the talent acquisition person that, that onboarded me, but really it was just handled so well. And it gave me the opportunity to not only showcase myself, but it gave me the opportunity to learn about who Comcast was and what that culture was like. That's fantastic. 
you're a great advocate for Comcast. I, like, <laughs> I, I'm like, I want to work there. <laughs> so we have to close out. But I did want to ask you, I actually forgot to ask you something at the very beginning. So we're just, I'm just going to ask you at the end now. It's about three o'clock here on the East Coast. And I usually like asking every guest just a piece of gratitude that they have for the day. What do you think is your favorite thing that happened today? I'm a big morning person. I wake up at probably 6 a.m. I was super excited to see how nice it was today, despite being inside and, and having calls. To me, I'm motivated in the morning. My morning is, my head is running around. What meetings do I have today? What does my, my day look like? What does the afternoon look like? What time do my kids get home? To me, that's fun. I think when I wake up plotting out my day and, and doing my morning read, it's exciting to me. It's as boring as that sounds. It's just really fun to do. <laughs> no, I love it. I, I also do that. How do you do it, though? Is it on pen and paper, on a computer? Is it just in your head? How do you plot out your day? So a little bit of both. Tends to be the phones. The mobiles tend to own that department. But I have a great home set up. My home office is, is great to set it up just like it, it is in the office. I've been doing a little bit of mix of both, going back in, working from home. And I think that's helped me a lot right now because you have diversity around what your day looks like, which is cool. But yeah, I'd say mostly phone. And when I get to the computer, I, I get into my meetings and my calls and, and I'm shocked that it's three. I know. It's crazy. Scott, I want to thank you so much for being here. If someone wants to chat with you about the work that you do, how can they connect with you best? Yeah, totally. Uh, I would say the best way, you know, find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm happy to connect and we can set up some time, but always open to building my network. So uh, feel free to reach out. Awesome. Thank you, Scott, so much for being here. Thank you, Sagal. This was great. Really appreciate it. Thank you, leaders and future leaders for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with almost five stars and over a thousand verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers Who Lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.